The Culture and Anarchy Podcast presents The Weekly Stormer. You have insanity in my ear. No power to tax. Power to Do destroy. Do you actually know what the definition of fake news is? What we're doing right now. All things are nothing. This was a white lie. A right is something that it is the obligation of society to provide. Nobody has ever given a reason why men should be their brothers and keepers. And we see the examples around you of men perishing by the attempt to be their brothers and keepers. Someone in that control room is out of control. The Weekly Sterner. Episode 2 How Atheists Invented Christianity and How Christianity Invented Atheism Also, Notes on Feuerbach, Der Frien, and the Young Hegelians Stirner begins his work in the first part of The Ego and His Own, which is entitled Man, by addressing the psychological development of man as the individual transitions from childhood to youth and finally to adulthood. In his introduction to the Cambridge edition of Stirner, David Leopold notes that the two parts of Stirner's book headed Man and I are an implicit structural parody of the sections God and Man, a Feuerbach's best-known work, The Essence of Christianity. This lets us into Stirner's early critique of Feuerbach, whereby Stirner intends to challenge the God of the liberals, which is Feuerbach's conception of man, with the egoist identity, which is I. In Chapter 1 of The Ego and His Own, the individual learns, upon exiting boyhood, how to extract his subjective identity from the humanist quest to either 1. Objectify human nature as a deity, which in turn commands veneration of human nature as a god, or 2. Deify the perfect human nature as the cause of humanity, which in turn commands each individual to venerate human nature and to work towards its perfection. In his combat with the cause of the spirit and the cause of the body throughout his youth, the individual undergoes intellectual and emotional growth. And Stirner will subsequently argue that one can see a similar progression in the consciousness of humankind from the pre-Socratics to the ancients of classical Greece and Rome and on through the moderns. But only if one takes a discriminating look at the grand arc of philosophical history under the rubric of the ego the I, that is the specimen's sense of self. In order to understand Stirner's design in the first chapter of his book, and to begin to understand why he would begin his work in the way that he does, it helps to understand the intellectual climate in which Max Stirner worked. It was during the dying days of Hegelian theology slash philosophy. One might best understand Stirner's sharp turn away from the Hegelian liberals by taking a look at the implications of Ludwig Feuerbach's theses about man's relation to the divine, as well as taking a look at Feuerbach's underlying theory about man's alienation from God in the essence of Christianity. Stirner, Marx, Feuerbach, and Bruno Bauer all worked in the Hegelian tradition, But Stirner did what none of those other young Hegelians was able to do. He cast off the suffocating blanket of collectivism that characterized Hegel's divine philosophy and discovered liberty in absolute individualism. Marx, Bauer, and Feuerbach would all put some distance between themselves and Hegel, but none of them was able to stifle their veneration of collectivism. Stirner's work in his early chapters is partly an interpretation of and application of what undergirded Feuerbach's own argument in The Essence of Christianity. And then, in The Ego and His Own's summation, Stirner undertook an ultimate rejection of the manner in which Feuerbach eventually closed the Hegelian system. 
Feuerbach worked his own way out of the program of Hegelian idealism. But Stirner ultimately crashed that system like a computer virus. After Stirner, the system could not be recovered, even if Marx sought to partially resuscitate that system in his own philosophical system. But here, today, in order to keep things brief, I shall only deal with generalizations of Feuerbach's theses in order to ground Stirner's opening salvo in its intellectual context. After G.W.F. Hegel's death in 1831, a branch of intellectuals working in the tradition of Hegel reworked his theory of history to create a theory of leftism, rooted in the idea that history's progress held out a singular promise. Anything in opposition to reason and freedom would inevitably be crushed by the full momentum of the coming end of history, when mankind would nearer approach the fullest realization of human nature and human potential. Pure liberty, equality, and fraternity. One of the central roadblocks to the progress of the human spirit was religion itself. And it was against religion, God, Christianity, and spiritualism that the young Hegelians aimed their guns. This group of left Hegelians, known also as the Young Hegelians, included the likes of David Strauss, the famous critic of the historical Jesus, Ludwig Feuerbach, the famous critic of the Christian religion, Bruno Bauer, the famous critic of Christ who theorized that the whole story was a fiction with no history behind it, Max Stirner, the quintessential egoist, Karl Marx, the communist utopian, and Arnold Rouge, who believed that the state was the fullest realization of freedom, along with several other egalitarian thinkers. The motley assortment of young Hegelians who attended the University of Berlin formed into a group that was headed by Bruno Bauer, and they were known collectively as Der Freien, which means the free. And they would often talk and debate with one another at a wine bar in central Berlin. Although these intellectuals were momentously influential in European thought, they were not bonded internally by any ideological commonalities except for their liberal slant on Hegel's philosophy of history. Max Stirner, who might be described as an anarchist, egoist, and even a libertarian, was the most radical departure from the liberalism of Dufrian for he rejected the systems of liberalism and communism put forward by Feuerbach and Marx. Feuerbach published his philosophy on the subject of the evolution of religious systems, the essence of Christianity, in the year 1841, only four years before Stirner published his own treatise on individualism. And though today we might find Feuerbach's work not entirely radical, it was controversial and stirring in its own day and was quickly translated into the English language in 1854 by the English novelist and Germanophile George Eliot, a.k.a. Marianne Evans. This was the high age of philology and German idealism, the fusion of the humanities and speculative philosophy into a singular discipline of historical idealism known today as historicism. And Feuerbach, whose intellectual current runs through the Hegelian branch of German idealism, I have found, remains somewhat alien to many Anglo-American libertarians, mostly due to the fact that he traded in the concepts of the quintessential prophet of the Prussian state, G.W.F. Hegel, the ultimate anti-libertarian stooge. Libertarians and Hegel are like oil and water, and so the ideas of a German libertarian like Stirner remain somewhat alien to the Anglophone world. The American individualist anarchist Benjamin Tucker, the founder of Liberty, which is a famous anarchist periodical that published the works of Lysander Spooner, amongst others, considered it one of the great achievements of his career that, under his guidance, Max Stirner's off-censored work, The Ego and His Own, was finally translated into English. Oddly, Stirner's most lasting influence upon the West has been as a meme, as the ghostbuster who is everywhere spying out spooks and banishing them to the nether realm. 
Despite Feuerbach's irrelevance to libertarianism, he became a socialist after reading the first volume of Das Kapital, there is something valuable to be gleaned from Feuerbach's theses and Stirner's criticism of the ideas undergirding those theses. Stirner has quite a bit of fun in the first half of his book as he plays with the story of the individual's life and the intellectual life of Western civilization, ultimately leading him to a refutation of Feuerbach's theory of the progress of mankind. Whereas Feuerbach begins his book by tearing into the concept of God in the understanding, always relating the divine to the common characteristics of the human species, Stirner begins by isolating the specimen within the species, the ultimate origin of all thoughts, even thoughts about the common characteristics of the human species, the origin of all knowledge, and all action, which is the individual man. It is not humankind that serves as a model for God in Stirner's system, as it is in Feuerbach's schematic. Rather, it is the specimen, the subject man, the ego, which is the true model for God. Feuerbach's theory of religion, and particularly of Christianity, was centered in the idea that the very concept of God, both in theory and in theology, is nothing but a projection of man's ideal nature into the Godhead. God is, first and foremost, a projection of the human species, the rational animal, the zoon politikon, into an eternal and unchanging state outside of time and space. Existence is the realm where ideals get corrupted and fall into conditional and relative disrepair over time. Since mankind only knows its own species by experience, only thinks in the manner of its species through reason as a result of its evolutionary history, as opposed to venerating the characteristics of the crocodile or the fish, for example, and because man only values what his species values, therefore God can only exist for humankind as humankind, which is to say, humankind as the highly evolved and intellectual hominid. Even so, at various stages of physical and intellectual evolution, man's conception of himself and his ultimate values changed depending upon his environmental pressures. For the hunters and gatherers, the gods were weather phenomena and beasts of the field, for man had not yet gained mastery over the elements and the beasts of the field. And for the earliest civilizations, God was a man, an autocrat, a king. For man, after gaining mastery over the beasts of the field, had not yet gained mastery over other men. Once men gained mastery over other men through empire, men venerated characteristics of the human character. Charity, kindness, warlike aggression, coercion, love. The emotional universe of man, the microcosm who had realized his potential as the domesticated citizen of empire. With the emergence of man from a state of savagery and wildness to one of culture, writes Feuerbach, with the distinction between what is fitting for man and what is not fitting, arises simultaneously the distinction between that which is fitting and that which is not fitting for God. God is the idea of majesty, of the highest dignity. The religious sentiment is the sentiment of supreme fitness. The later, more cultured artists of Greece were the first to embody in the statues of the gods the ideas of dignity, of spiritual grandeur, of imperturbable repose and serenity. But why were these qualities, in their view, attributes, predicates of God? because they were in themselves regarded by the Greeks as divinities. Why did those artists exclude all disgusting and low passions? Because they perceived them to be unbecoming, unworthy, unhuman, and consequently, ungodlike. The Homeric gods eat and drink. That implies eating and drinking is a divine pleasure. 
Physical strength is an attribute of the Homeric gods. Zeus is the strongest of the gods. Why? Because physical strength, in and by itself, was regarded as something glorious, divine. To the ancient Germans, the highest virtues were those of the warrior. Therefore, their supreme god was the god of war, Odin. War, the original or oldest law. As man moved along this timeline, he eventually reached a state where he was no longer fully alienated from himself, for he had gained true self-mastery. It is at this point that he reached the stage where he would have to slay God in order to ward off spiritual stagnation. He would have to, once and for all, sacrifice the once unobtainable ideal of himself upon the altar of mankind, thus taking the Godhead unto himself, and thus enacting the end of history, the progressivist utopia. God is man's highest estimation of himself in some particular culture, age, and stage in history. Man takes this ideal portrait, the sum of all rational human virtues, and then projects it away from himself, because he knows that he cannot live up to the ideal consistently. He is too much with this world, and not enough of the world of perfect forms. There, once the subject, man, has become an object of examination, once man sees himself as separate from those ideals which he attributes to God, and then sees in himself his alienation from those ideals as a low man, what Stirner calls corporeal man with hide and hair, the object is treated as if it were a deity rather than the human subject that is actually the source of a culture's particular godhead. The subject, man, tailors for himself an expensive suit of ideals, virtues, essences, and characteristics, by first stripping himself down to the flesh, and he then treats that Armani suit as an object of human investigation, an empty suit, worn by the deity, which can never be worn by man. The suit is too fine, too expensive. It has cost too much blood and treasure to stitch it together, and so man gives the empty suit an honored place at the heart of those monolithic temples jutting up from the earth to reverence the divine. Man, in the meantime, must go forth naked and shameful, a flayed man, always conscious of the fact that he has fallen short of the ideal. And so God, and this is a typical Hegelian notion, is a constant reminder that humankind is alienated from his highest ideals. In order to rediscover his human dignity, man builds temples, states, and rules, and by these rules he learns to live a life of veneration aiming at the ultimate recovery, in the afterlife, of his most cherished thoughts. Feuerbach writes, Religion is human nature reflected, mirrored in itself. That which exists has necessarily a pleasure, a joy in itself, loves itself, and loves itself justly. To blame it because it loves itself is to reproach it because it exists. To exist is to assert oneself, to affirm oneself, to love oneself. He to whom life is a burden rids himself of it. Where, therefore, feeling is not depreciated and repressed, as with the Stoics, where existence is awarded to it, there also is religious power and significance already conceded to it. There also is it already exalted to that stage in which it can mirror and reflect itself, in which it can project its own image as God. God is the mirror of man. That which has essential value for man, which he esteems the perfect, the excellent, in which he has true delight, that alone is God to him. If feeling seems to thee a glorious attribute, it is then, per se, a divine attribute to thee. Therefore, the feeling, sensitive man, 
believes only in a feeling, sensitive God. That is, he believes only in the truth of his own existence and nature, for he can believe in nothing else than that which is involved in his own nature. His faith is the consciousness of that which is holy to him. But that alone is holy to man which lies deepest within him, which is most peculiarly his own, the basis, the essence of his individuality. To the feeling man, a god without feeling is an empty, abstract, negative god. That is, nothing, because that is wanting to him which is precious and sacred to man. God is, for man, the commonplace book where he registers his highest feelings and thoughts, the genealogical tree on which are entered the names that are dearest and most sacred to him. Culture plays an important role in leading man to his God. Each nation has its own variation of God, even under the broad heading of Christianity. The Germans have a German God, writes Feuerbach. The pious Spaniards, a Spanish God. The French, a French God. The French actually have the proverb, Le bon Dieu est français, which translates as, The good God is French. In fact, polytheism must exist so long as there are various nations. The real God is the point d'honneur of its nationality. This is nothing so radical to our modern ears. A thousand philosophers in the past century have critiqued theism in precisely this manner, treating God as nothing more than a big human in the sky, stripped of humankind's particular aspects, some of which are less than ideal and romantic. But Feuerbach's critique of religion was radical in this one sense. Because Christianity's conception of divine nature was actually a veneration of human nature, minus the imperfections of man in various conditions and extremities, those pesky externalities, Christianity was thus a veneration of the human, and not the worship of some strange, unknowable, and esoteric creator god. Christianity was, ironically, a subtle, disguised atheism. Atheism was thus Christianity's ultimate potential, the fullest realization of the Christian religion, which is the veneration of humanity. This was a truly radical doctrine. Where Stirner finds his point of disagreement with Feuerbach is in the totality of the phenomenon under discussion, the idea of alienation. For Feuerbach and the young Hegelians, including the Marxists, the left liberals, and the theocratic totalitarians, everything about the human experience of the individual was related only to humankind which is the individual specimen's species classification, a collective noun, or a collective identity. For Stirner, the ultimate goal of the alienated spirit and body was not to replace the self-identity of God with the collective identity of humankind, which is the ultimate goal of the liberal, according to Feuerbach. The liberals of succeeding ages sought to enact the hypostatization of the eschaton, which is the transition of the end of history, the eidos of history, or the Hegelian zeitgeist, into the present state of existence, dragging heaven into the present by means of the state apparatus, the apparatus of coercion and aggression. Even Marx believed that by joining humankind under a single class heading, absent all class distinctions, for example, the differentiation in genes, races, inequalities, differing abilities, unbridgeable gaps in IQ, social ranks, material wealth, capital production, trade, and intelligences, the one far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves, or the hypostasis of the economic eschaton, was an inevitability for the species. Always, with the young Hegelians, the idea was that the human point of reference of the individual's consciousness exercised priority over the subjective autonomy of the individual self-owner. The human race, the good cause, 
was the egalitarian cause of man, the brotherhood of man, the family of mankind, and other such-like collectivist notions. Man's point of reference as something other than an independent, autonomous decision-making unit, and something more like an undifferentiated we, was, thusly granted, something empty of authority and will, empty of irresponsibility. For though Feuerbach recognized that existence for man rested in asserting the will and asserting the self, the fact remained that asserting the self is not the assertion of the abstract class of the species. It is always the assertion of the specimen, the ego, with all his own valuations and margins, his imperfections, his body, and not the assertion of a perfect unitary class of mammalian hominid. Individual men do not share interest. No two units of a good, saith the marginal utility economist, have an equal value. And so, man cannot compare values interpersonally as if they could be measured in empirical units. The collective was thus an abstraction, and it did not have an eternal cohesive bond, at least not in the classes whose boundaries were being drawn by the young Hegelians. The individual man was bound by his class for the young Hegelians, always tied to his neighbor by a social bond. Man could only ever capture the truth of the world by squinting outwards through a pair of oily and besmeared spectacles, where the vast and amorphous blob of mankind was legion, and never an individualized demon like Beelzebub. Man was public. He was never private. But if in God lay the potential for perfect justice, which could be captured by casting into heaven the liberal fishing rod and then reeling in the alienated specter of an enlightened and liberal mankind, then in God lay also the potential for perfect injustice, that is, irresponsible, collective justice, which could assert itself by projecting the general will of the masses against anyone who defied the class. Thus, the young Hegelians' notion about social collectives were nothing but notions about totalitarian coercion and aggression against individuals. In slaying God, the liberals left no barrier between the individual soul and the divine ideal. And because no barrier was left between individuals, because man and God were now blended together into a liberal zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, without a third term betwixt them, which used to be the impersonal, distant, heavenly deity whose divine commandments required service to God, or to the ideal man, instead of subjecting each man to his neighbor's tyranny, as his neighbor's ultimate responsibility, then there was thus no barrier to prevent man's quest to perfect his neighbor on his neighbor's behalf, and there was thus no barrier to prevent the resentment that necessarily follows this chain of never minding one's own business. The new theology, which was just a variation of the old, was one which preached the perfection of mankind, and the new gospel demanded that every liberal man interfere with his neighbor's privacy in showy displays of superserviceable public zeal. And this conflict between the individual and the class, was to demarcate the conflicts between socialists and capitalists, socialists and individualists, socialists and egoists, and communists and socialists, or the debate between communists and the puritanical democrats throughout succeeding generations. And those damned left liberals, the apotheosis of democratic man, were determined to stick their noses in everybody else's private affairs. Now, the marginal utility economics of the Austrian school in the 1870s sidestepped these more mystical considerations about human nature when they, 30 years after the young Hegelians had begun their enterprise, sketched a theory of human nature, since they drew a sufficient division between theory and history in their methodology. But for the materialists of German philosophy, Feuerbach, Marx, and so on, 
there was only history. Man was body, atoms, and organs. He had no other quality. His mind was just cells. His ideas were biological excretions. And theory was just a scientific a posteriori reclassification of a posteriori facts. All data, no will. All induction, no deduction. The progress of history towards the ultimate liberation of man was an inevitability that left the individual man no means of changing the narrative. Where Stirner entered this debate, he grasped that this kind of alienation of the individual away from himself is not a species phenomenon, but an individual phenomenon. Life is a process of self-discovery, and an examined life was one that made sure that the individual ego was never the ward of his neighbor, never the perfecter of mankind, never in the service of some abstraction or spook. All specimens of the human species experience this alienation from perfection, not because there is something true in the projection of the human race away from itself, for the human race is itself an abstract class, the knowledge of which is gained by power of individual reason. Before the child is born, before everything that comes in contact with the child defends itself against his attacks, the universe does not exist. The child must come to understand the universe, to test it, and to reason out the way that things are. But as he does so, his intelligence is bounded by certain constraints. The constraints of his dependence upon others, as a ward of his parents. The constraints of his immaturity, not being a fully-fledged body prior to puberty. And the constraints of intellection, the intelligence he grows into only in the later stages of his development as he masters reason and is no longer a dependent. But there was truth in the alienation, Stirner insisted, because individuals fear the authorities who impose these ideals upon each up-and-coming generation. Since God is all that is good in man, in Feuerbach's system, man is as a nothing to God. Without man, God has no content to distinguish his being. Without God, all things are as nothing to man. But of course, Feuerbach left in place the duties that man owes to his species because Feuerbach preserved the ideal man as God at the center of the liberal revolution of mankind. If man could extract himself from the herd to become an isolated ego then the libertarian triumph of the individual would leave the ego free to pursue its pleasure without being beholden to other men. The child, of course, knows nothing of these ideals. One learns to fear authority. One learns to conquer the stick or to be subdued by the stick. One is clearly conscious that I am not you, and the stick reinforces this truth. And yet... The stick is applied to press-gang the ego into line with peers, as if a man could ever inhabit the empty classes of humankind, or liberals, or radicals, or Christians. One understands that the duties of man must be inherited by experience, passed on by our parents. But one has one's own experience prior to all received claims about the so-called human experience lived by others. And so, true manhood lies precisely in taking responsibility only for one's own actions, and not those of others. One must, in the words of Nietzsche, prepare oneself to be unjust to the collectives in their veneration of abstract, selfless, liberal virtue. And beyond good and evil, Nietzsche wrote, According to nature, you want to live? <laughs> oh, you noble Stoics. What deceptive words these are. Imagine a being like nature, wasteful beyond measure, indifferent beyond measure, without purposes and consideration, without mercy and justice, 
fertile and desolate and uncertain at the same time. Imagine indifference itself as a power. How could you live according to this indifference? Living. Is that not precisely wanting to be other than this nature? Is not living, estimating, preferring, being unjust, being limited, wanting to be different? And supposing your imperative, live according to nature, meant at bottom as much as live according to life, how could you not do that? Why make a principle of what you yourselves are and must be? Nature is not, as Feuerbach insisted, something virtuous in and of itself. And human generation and evolution equips us for perfect cruelty, as much as for catalaxy, that is, the voluntary win-win interpersonal exchange of goods and ideas that turns potential enemies into friends. Feuerbach, no doubt, saw his own theory as one that promoted the social nature of mankind and prioritized peace, tolerance, and comity between the comrades of the coming secular age. Nature was not just justice, it was social justice, the justice of mankind. Living was not just purposeful, it was a revelation of the path to the perfection of human civilization. Feuerbach rhapsodized upon the invisible tie that binds each specimen of the species together in a way that prefigured the totalitarian impulse of all totalitarian socialist schemes. From alienation, man proceeds towards union and the undifferentiated self of a priori theory, transported now into a posteriori history. Consciousness of the world, writes Feuerbach, is the consciousness of my own limitation. If I knew nothing of a world, I should know nothing of limits. But the consciousness of my limitation stands in contradiction with the impulse of my egoism towards unlimitedness. Thus, from egoism conceived as absolute, God is the absolute self, I cannot pass immediately to its opposite. I must introduce, prelude, moderate this contradiction by the consciousness of a being who is indeed another, and in so far gives me the perception of my limitation, but in such a way as at the same time to affirm my own nature, make my own nature objective to me. The consciousness of the world is a humiliating consciousness. The creation was an act of humility, but the first stone against which the pride of egoism stumbles is the thou, the alter ego. The ego first steals its glance in the eye of thou before it endures the contemplation of a being which does not reflect its own image. My fellow man is the bond between me and the world. I am, and I feel myself, dependent on the world, because I first feel myself dependent on other men. If I did not need man, I should not need the world. I reconcile myself with the world only through my fellow man. Without other men, the world would be for me not only dead and empty, but meaningless. Only through his fellow does man become clear to himself and self-conscious. But only when I am clear to myself does the world become clear to me. A man existing absolutely alone would lose himself without any sense of his individuality in the ocean of nature. He would neither comprehend himself as man, nor nature as nature. The first object of man is man. The sense of nature, which opens to us the consciousness of the world as a world, is a later product, for it first arises through the distinction of man from himself. Though some individuals of a particular cultural legacy are in fact trapped within the systems of thought that regard the species as having priority over the specimen, the egoists, by birth, by character, by temper, are capable of getting out of the eternal cycle 
of the mind-body division and class definitions. One can find in oneself not body bound by the pursuit of spirit, the ancients, nor yet a body of hide and hair lacking pure spirit, the Christian, nor even yet the human species reclaiming their godhood as a species, the liberal, progressive, democratic man. Rather, the ego could instead progress to adulthood wherein one learns to accept the truth of the matter, where spirit and body are a seamless whole, the consummate wholeness enjoyed by God in his very name, Yahweh, which means, I am. This, to Stirner, is the life apart. The life no longer living in pursuit of the unity of mankind, the brotherhood of man, which is the monarchism of a liberal ideology, the monastic rule of the fraternal order of liberty and equality. Some people are simply not my brothers and sisters, and I do not give a farthing about their fates because, to me, they are but abstractions, mere spooks. I would not dash the heavens and earth in order to liberate yon teeming shore, upon which the huddled Venezuelan masses yearn to be free, if it should mean that my own liberty be cast aside for their sakes, either by taxation or the duties of man. The ancients had first to discover themselves, and they asked, What am I? Once discovering something about themselves, namely that they were not their ideals, then they became skeptical Socratics in pursuit of pure spirit, and asked themselves, Am I? With the advent of rationalism, Descartes' maxim identified thought with identity, cogito ergo sum, which means, I think, therefore, I am. Man existed, and so did his ideals, but only when he was consciously thinking about things, never in his environmental conditioning, his unthinking cultural practices, and his animal reactions to stimuli. Rational man, liberal man, needed to rid himself of his pure conditioning and to isolate the rational as the ideal so that he could come to inhabit the pure species, humankind. The Christians, on the other hand, identified thought with God as cogito ergo Yahweh, I think, therefore I am, where I am is God. The Pauline Credo maintained that I think, therefore I am in communion with God by thinking of the perfect self above me, where God is the mirror of humankind. The young Hegelians, the liberal idealists, the socialists, the communists, these various species of collectivists believed that they had finally closed the circle of history, had finally killed God, had reclaimed their alienated selves, and so identified the class of the species, a scientific collective, with God, as cogitamos ergo sumos, Yahweh. We think, therefore, we are gods. Finally, man had scaled the pyramid, and the Godhead had been reached. Man donned his suit of colored ideals and stood glorious in the sunlight. All that was left to do was to seize the material world through the means of production and to parcel out each man's share of divinity. Marx took this to mean that humankind would become a singular faculty of conscious exertion, the factory state of joint ownership of all goods and production for a singular societal plan with a capital P, which would never tolerate the pursuit of an irresponsible, arbitrary, trivial, or individual end. For Stirner, this was all just a continuation of the cycle of alienation and theism. One could simply do away with this childish alienation, be I am, and not be Yahweh's consummate sum. The ancient Jews called God I am, and Eir Asha'ea, I am that I am. But to be and to be without justification to others, to be one's own all in all, with one's own subjective tastes, one's own desires for inegalitarian increase of wealth, for sexual satisfaction, for selfish desires, for the sake of one's own blood and family, 
to be utterly irresponsible to any but one's own unique self was the true measure of life and the ultimate achievement of liberty. Equality is, for egalitarian theists, who idolized and venerated the perfect proletariat, the god of socialism. According to Stirner, one did not need to reclaim anything from alienation, for the individual had never owed anyone anything and never needed to reclaim his identity from alienation. One could thus be one's own all in all, the ultimate point of projection, the cosmic self-owner that is the source of all the alienation experienced by individuals who were ever in pursuit of collectivist abstractions, the cause of God, the cause of humankind, and so on. The whole alienation game, in the end, was never worth the time that was wasted upon playing at deities and abstract identities. It is in this sense that socialists have misunderstood the underlying schematic of Marx's historical materialism. His was a spiritual doctrine, not a material doctrine, much to the old philanderer's chagrin. Marx saw Stirner's I Am as the revelation of the capitalist mode of production. Stirner was a product of the dawning stage of the material productive forces produced by the steam mill. That is, he was a prophet of capitalism, the prophet of monopolized property, the self-interested man, the ego. And Stirner was thus, to Marx, the revelation of the capitalist godhead as the sole god, the one god, the autistic god, the individual god, the god who communes one-on-one with man through distinct, self-directed, revelatory interactions. If that capitalistic god ruled the cosmos, or man the microcosm, without asking leave of his brethren to be his own person, what then? The whole communistic class enterprise would falter before the true nature of man, the self-directed selfish, and enlightened individual who had no need of the perfect, egalitarian class definition against which he would struggle to distinguish himself in the new religion of socialism. Stirner was, to Marx, a dangerous thinker, for Stirner had already grasped the very reason that socialism would fail. Socialism was just another Christianity— a Puritanism searching for the divine in the apotheosized, egalitarian, undifferentiated, proletarian oversoul. But what if man is indeed unjust, unequal, subjective, selfish, and self-directed? What if he made his decisions on a margin, not on the basis of an objective value theory? What if there was no objective value theory, since each subject is a self-owner, Well, then communism would fail. Or else, all the heretics, those who chose not to obey the herd, must be cut down and liquidated when push came to shove. And, as history revealed, to be pushed by the egalitarian left into a mass grave, a firing squad, a trench, a breadline, or a gas chamber. Hence, Marx directed his fullest energies in his book, the German ideology, not published until 1932, against St. Mox, in a lengthy diatribe against Mox Stirner, which occupies the majority of the treatise. But we shall have to leave Marx until further installments of the series, since the vitriol Marx poured upon Stirner's legacy was enough to kill Stirner amongst the vast majority of European liberals until Stirner was recovered by American anarchists and libertarians in the early 20th century. Part First Man Man is to man the supreme being, says Feuerbach. Man has just been discovered, says Bruno Bauer. Then let us take a more careful look at this supreme being and this new discovery. Chapter 1. A Human Life From the moment when he catches sight of the light of the world, 
a man seeks to find out himself and get hold of himself out of its confusion, in which he, with everything else, is tossed about in a motley mixture. But everything that comes in contact with the child defends itself in turn against his attacks and asserts its own persistence. Accordingly, because each thing cares for itself and at the same time comes into constant collision with other things, the combat of self-assertion is unavoidable. Victory or defeat. Between the two alternatives, the fate of the combat wavers. The victor becomes the lord, the vanquished one the subject. The former exercises supremacy and rights of supremacy, the latter fulfills in awe and deference the duties of a subject. But both remain enemies and always lie in wait. They watch for each other's weaknesses, children for those of their parents and parents for those of their children. For example, their fear Either the stick conquers the man, or the man conquers the stick. In childhood, liberation takes the direction of trying to get to the bottom of things, to get at what is back of things. Therefore, we spy out the weak points of everybody, for which, it is well known, children have a sure instinct. Therefore, we like to smash things, like to rummage through hidden corners, pry after what is covered up or out of the way, and try what we can do with everything. When we once get at what is back of the things, we know we are safe. When, for example, we have got at the fact that the rod is too weak against our obduracy, then we no longer fear it, have outgrown it. Back of the rod, mightier than it, stands our obduracy, our obdurate courage, by degrees, we get, b we get at what is back of everything that was mysterious and uncanny to us, the mysteriously dreaded might of the rod, the father's stern look, and so on. And back of all, we find our ataraxy, that is, imperturbability, intrepidity, our counterforce, our odds of strength, our invincibility. Before that which formerly inspired in us fear and deference, we no longer retreat shyly, but take courage. Back of everything, we find our courage, our superiority. Back of the sharp command of parents and authorities stands, after all, our courageous choice or our outwitting shrewdness. And the more we feel ourselves, the smaller appears that which before seemed invincible. And what is our trickery, shrewdness, courage, obduracy? What else but geist, the mind? Through a considerable time, we are spared a fight that is so exhausting later, the fight against reason. The fairest part of childhood passes without the necessity of coming to blows with reason. We care nothing at all about it, do not meddle with it, admit no reason. We are not persuaded to anything by conviction, and are deaf to good arguments, principles, and so on. On the other hand, coaxing, punishment, and the like are hard for us to resist. This stern life-and-death combat with reason enters later, and begins a new phase. In childhood, we scamper about without racking our brains much. Mind is the name of the first self-discovery, the first undeification of the divine, that is, of the uncanny, the spooks, the powers above. Our fresh feeling of youth, this feeling of self, now defers to nothing. The world is discredited, for we are above it. We are mind. Now, for the first time, we see that hitherto we have not looked at the world intelligently at all, but only stared at it. We exercise the beginnings of our strength on natural powers. We defer to parents as a natural power. Later, we say, Father and mother are to be forsaken, all natural power to be counted as riven. They are vanquished. For the rational, that is, intellectual man, there is no family as a natural power. 
a renunciation of parents, brothers, and so on, makes its appearance. If these are born again as intellectual, rational powers, they are no longer at all what they were before. And not only parents, but men in general, are conquered by the young man. They are no hindrance to him, and are no longer regarded. For now he says, one must obey God rather than men. From this high standpoint, everything earthly recedes into contemptible remoteness, for the standpoint is the heavenly. The attitude is now altogether reversed. The youth takes up an intellectual position, while the boy, who did not yet feel himself as mind, as geist, grew up in mindless learning. The former does not try to get a hold of things, for example, to get into his head the data of history, but of the thoughts that lie hidden in things, and so, for example, the spirit of history. On the other hand, the boy understands connections, no doubt, but not ideas, the spirit. Therefore, he strings together whatever can be learned, without proceeding a priori and theoretically, that is, without looking for ideas. As in childhood one had to overcome the resistance of the laws of the world, so now in everything that he proposes he is met by an objection of the mind, of reason, of his own conscience. That is unreasonable, unchristian, unpatriotic, and the like, cries the conscience to us, and frightens us away from it. Not the might of the avenging Eumenides, not Poseidon's wrath, not God. Far as he sees the hidden, not the father's rod of punishment do we fear, but conscience. We run after our thoughts now and follow their commands just as before we followed parental, human ones. Our course of action is determined by our thoughts, ideas, conceptions, faith, as it is in childhood by the commands of our parents. For all that, we were already thinking when we were children, only our thoughts were not fleshless, abstract, absolute, that is, nothing but thoughts, a heaven in themselves, a pure world of thought, logical thoughts. On the contrary, they had been only thoughts that we had about a thing. We thought of the thing so or so. Thus we may have thought, God made the world that we see there. But we did not think of, or search, the depths of the Godhead itself. We may have thought, that is the truth about the matter. But we did not think of truth itself, nor unite into one sentence, God is truth. The depths of the Godhead, who is truth, we did not touch. Over such purely logical, that is, theological questions, what is truth, Pilate does not stop, though he does not, therefore, hesitate to ascertain in an individual case what truth there is in a thing, that is, whether the thing is true. Any thought bound to a thing is not yet nothing but a thought, absolute thought. To bring to light the pure thought, or to be of its party, is the delight of our youth, and all the shapes of the light in the world of thought, like truth, freedom, humanity, man, and so on, illumine and inspire the youthful soul. But when the spirit is recognized as the essential thing, it still makes a difference whether the spirit is poor or rich, and therefore one seeks to become rich in spirit. The spirit wants to spread out so as to found its empire, an empire that is not of this world, the world just conquered. Thus, then, it longs to become all in all to itself. That is, although I am spirit, I am not yet perfected spirit, and must first seek the complete spirit. But with that, I, who had just now found myself as spirit, lose myself again at once, bowing before the complete spirit, as one not my own, but supernal, and feeling my emptiness. Spirit is the essential point for everything, to be sure. But then, is every spirit the right spirit? The right and true spirit is the ideal of spirit, 
the Holy Spirit. It is not my or your spirit, but just an ideal, supernal one. It is God. God is spirit. And this supernal Father in heaven gives it to those who pray to him. The man is distinguished from the youth by the fact that he takes the world as it is, instead of everywhere fancying it amiss and wanting to improve it. That is, model it after his ideal. In him, the view that one must deal with the world according to his interest, not according to his ideals, becomes confirmed. So long as one knows himself only as spirit, and feels that all the value of his existence consists in being spirit, it becomes easy for the youth to give his life, the bodily life, for a nothing, for the silliest point of honor. So long it is only thoughts that one has, ideas that he hopes to be able to realize someday when he has found a sphere of action. Thus, one has meanwhile only ideals, unexecuted ideas or thoughts. Not till one has fallen in love with his corporeal self and takes a pleasure in himself as a living, flesh-and-blood person, but it is in mature years, in the man, that we find it so. Not till then has one a personal or egoistic interest. That is, an interest not only of our spirit, for instance, but of total satisfaction. Satisfaction of the whole chap. A selfish interest. Just compare a man with a youth and see if he will not appear to you harder, less magnanimous, more selfish. Is he therefore worse? No, you say. He has only become more definite, or, as you also call it, more practical. But the main point is this, that he makes himself more the center than does the youth, who is infatuated about other things, such as God, fatherland, and so on. Therefore, the man shows a second self-discovery. The youth found himself as spirit and lost himself again in the general spirit, the complete, holy spirit, man, mankind, in short, all ideals. The man finds himself as embodied spirit. Boys had only unintellectual interest, that is, interest devoid of all thoughts and ideas, youths only intellectual ones. The man has bodily, personal, egoistic interest. If the child has not an object that it can occupy itself with, it feels ennui, for it does not yet know how to occupy itself with itself. The youth, on the contrary, throws the object aside, because for him, thoughts arose out of the object. He occupies himself with his thoughts, his dreams, occupies himself intellectually, or... His mind is occupied. The young man includes everything not intellectual under the contemptuous name of externalities. If he nevertheless sticks to the most trivial externalities, such as the customs of students' clubs and other familiarities, it is because, and when, he discovers mind in them. That is, when they are symbols to him. As I find myself back of things, and that as mind, so I must later find myself also back of thoughts, to wit, as their creator and owner. In the time of spirits, thoughts grew till they overtopped my head, whose offspring they yet were. They hovered about me and convulsed me like fever fantasies, an awful power. The thoughts had become corporeal on their own account, were ghosts, such as God, Emperor, Pope, Fatherland, and so on. If I destroy their corporeity, then I take them back into mine and say, I alone am corporeal. And now I take the world as what it is to me, as mine, as my property. I refer all to myself. If as spirit I had thrust away the world in the deepest contempt, so as owner I thrust spirits or ideas away into their vanity. They have no longer any power over me, as no earthly might has power over the spirit. The child was realistic, taken up with the things of this world, 
till little by little he succeeded in getting at what was back of these very things. The youth was idealistic, inspired by thoughts, till he worked his way up to where he became the man, the egoistic man, who deals with things and thoughts according to his heart's pleasure and sets his personal interest above everything. Finally, the old man? When I become one, there will still be time enough to speak of that. Selections from The Ego and His Own by Max Sterner, published in the year 1844. Translation by Stephen Byington in the year 1907. Originally published by Benjamin Tucker, New York. I am the owner of my might, and I am so when I know myself as unique. In the unique one, the owner himself returns into his creative nothing, out of which he is born. Every higher essence above me, be it God, be it man, weakens the feeling of my uniqueness, and pales only before the sun of this consciousness. If I concern myself for myself, the unique one, then my concern rests on its transitory mortal creator, who consumes himself, and I may say, all things are nothing to me. Featuring the music of Pablo de Sarasate, Zigunerweisen, performed by Ivan Kivalidi. This recording is protected by Creative Commons License 3.0 and is in the public domain, courtesy of MuseOpen.org. And, as always, featuring the beats of the Passion Hi-Fi, their track, What We Came to Do. Follow them on SoundCloud and Twitter, and give them a great rating.